Hey everybody, welcome to the JDO show. It's been a year, but we are back and we are back with Mr. Rob Volmar. Hey Rob, thanks for coming on the show. Man, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Excellent, excellent, cool. So the way that the JDO show is going to work from now on, like I said, we've been gone for about a year, is when I have a guest on, instead of having a free-flowing conversation, you know, two buds drinking a beer, shooting the shit, instead, we are going to talk about a particular book. So I personally asked Rob on today to talk about a book called Can Life Prevail by Penti Linkola. What do you think of the book, Rob? Did you did was it enjoyable? Oh yeah, it it is an enjoyable book to read. It's uh, you know, it if you're, you know, if you're a fan of like Wendell Berry's, you know, kind of um, personal essays that he wrote. You know, these are kind of in the same vein. Um, you know, as a guy who studies birds and has spent a lot of time in the Finnish, you know, wilderness. Um, he has a lot of interesting insights about the evolution of those uh, environmental systems over, you know, the course of decades, uh, especially in the kind of post-World War II hyper-industrialized period. So I think that just from like a strict kind of naturalist perspective, that there's, you know, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of like interesting uh, observations. Um, and then, you know, as, uh, as his uh, narrative agenda becomes sort of more blatantly political, um, through the course of the book, like it, uh, you know, the writing is, uh, engaging and, uh, his persona, uh, kind of in the, in the work is, uh, com- compelling even when you don't agree with what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that, so basically to frame it for our listeners, Penti Linkola is a minor celebrity. Well, actually, I think he's a pretty decently major celebrity in Finland, his his yeah. home country. Uh, he was born in 1938. I hope I got that right. That's just off. That's what we say is off the dome. Um, <laughs> so he's a, he's an elderly gentleman. He's lived a very long time and he is he's made his money for most of his life as a fisherman using traditional fishing uh, traps to kind of catch his his and he's also uh, big into living in forests and he loves the man loves birds what can we say like he's, he's, a, he's very a big into birds. He's a, he is a big bird fan not a, you know what i mean <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, he probably he probably like has to love at the actual character big bird just because it's a bird like against his yeah. wishes right like he's beautiful. like hey i hate this show but god that's a beautiful big bird <laughs> he's just like you know the rest of the muppets can be gassed but <laughs> that's right. big bird's fine so on on that note um the this book to me is a collection of his essays from i believe the earliest one is from 1992 and it goes up until 2002 so just after 9-11 and the they're not presented chronologically. Instead, they're presented thematically. And so even though these are actual essays from a real human being, I think that the way these essays were laid out in this book is particularly interesting because to me it reads like a very kind of quiet uh, horror novel in a way. Yeah. Um, like it, becomes, it becomes radicalized uh, over the course of the, of the book. Although, as you say, if you actually structured them chronologically – uh, it it would read differently. So mm-hmm. it's purposeful, you know. It, yeah, it's very purposeful because, so the book begins and um, it's mostly about, it's kind of this very sad lament for the loss of Finnish forests. And it is pretty striking, the, the kind of figures that he gives you for the deforestation of, of Finland's uh, forests is, uh, it's ugly. And the way that he kind of describes you know, the forests of his youth versus the kind of blackened soil of, you know, post-industrialized Finland. Um, that's sort of like Batman's parents being killed, right? Yeah, you kind of get yeah. the Im- impression that things are beginning to turn with him. Uh, and then we move from that. We're moving very quickly because we want to get to the scary stuff. Mm-hmm. We move from that to animals where he, uh, the man does not like cats. 
He's not a huge fan of cats. He views them as an invasive species, uh, in addition to the things like the mink and the raccoon that are destabilizing his environment. And I think in particular, the animal section is important because you're beginning to kind of get an idea of how he, of what he considers a life balance to be. And so the cats become this kind of foreshadowing of how he's going to begin to speak of people, right? Um, as a sort of invasive parasitic species that has to, there's a, there's actually a kind of a chilling essay um, about cats where towards the end of it, he's like, so it's complete, you know, he's complaining, it's complete bullshit that you, you know, you can't drown a bag of cats anymore, right? To just like take care of this overpopulation problem that's uh, kind of killing off all these birds that he loves. But before we go too much further, um, in the book, there is this distinction between basically what what we're trying to do, right? Is he calls himself kind of a a life protector, alternating with a deep ecologist, right? So I know that this is something that you're really knowledgeable about. So can you tell us a little bit about what deep ecology is? Yeah. Um, so you know, most people. You know, like 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 most philosophical movements, you know they have, uh, you know they have like the, the 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 theorizing that happens before the term is coined, and then you have the work that sort of emerges from from that event, that paradigmatic shift, and so you know the work of like Wendell Berry and uh, Rachel Carson. Uh, Silent Spring, you know, that sort of um, formed the foundation of American environmentalism, um, you know, took some really fundamental questions to task about human beings and, you know, their activities in relation to the environment. And so um, in the early 1970s, there was a Norwegian philosopher named Arne Ness, uh, who coined this term deep ecology. So in order to appreciate what is deep about this ecology, it's valuable to contrast it against what we might call shallow or anthropocentric environmentalism. Okay. And, and that says human beings have to live in this environment. How can we conserve and or protect from the degradation of that environment in order to um, maximize human flourishing. Right. And, and, you know, so if you think about like the, um, like the American park system, mm -hmm. like I would, I would describe that as like anthropocentric environmentalism where we're cordoning off these spaces and yes, you know, we, you know, in some cases improve on biodiversity and stop, you know, the creep of industrial use or agricultural use, but they are maintained for the essential, you know, entertainment or edification of people to go in and sort of selectively occupy these spaces and, you know, um, benefit from that mm -hmm. uh, so deep ecology basically says that that all living things uh have an intrinsic worth regardless of whether or not they're useful to human needs and so it's a it's a kind of philosophical um shift from the position of how can the environment be optimized for human use to the environment should be um, protected at the expense of human flourishing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or, or at least ambivalent uh, to the, uh, to human flourishing. Mm -hmm. And so there are, you know, there's been, you know, a whole, generation of deep ecologists um, but what's interesting about deep ecology is that it 
it asks a powerful question that different deep ecologists have answered in different ways. And the question is, by what means? Mm. And so if, if we have, so if we have this obligation to protect, um, the quality of the environment, um, by what means, by any means necessary, mm. by, you know, uh, how do we, how do we do this? And so, um, you know, Linkola, his answer is basically, you know, human beings are not rational. Um, and the idea that we're going to, um, that we're going to somehow improve industrial systems or, or, or existing political systems to um, actually solve these problems is, is also irrational. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they are, in fact, predicated on the notion of extracting uh, from the environment in order to um, produce growth. Right, right. Basically, and, this so, whole idea that if as long as progress remains a goal, progress in the technological and market economy sense of the word, none of this is ever going to work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so that kind of leads us to uh, Linkola's controversial aspects. Um, I think he's probably pretty controversial in his home country. Um, certainly would be controversial here, particularly considering some of the things he says later on in the book. Um, the term eco-fascist gets pinned to him quite often. So can you, can you tell us a little bit I mean, I feel like those two words, I feel like if most listeners hear those, they might kind of begin to be getting an idea of where Linkola's thought goes. But is there a relation to deep ecology with ecofascism? Um, like, I believe you mentioned uh, off mic a, a sort of Venn diagram, perhaps. Right. Um, so the the thing about ecofascism is that um, it's, it's dicey, I think, at this stage to talk about ecofascism as if it is a discrete thing. Okay. Um, maybe it's more accurate to, to talk about ecofascisms mm, okay. because, because the term gets used in, in a, you know, some pretty divergent ways. And I would say to date that none of them have kind of emerged as the you know the the central figure you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so you know ecofascism for i think historically has been um just a, a pejorative term that that someone who was not who was maybe more aligned with you know market or industrial forces who was trying to get you know, I want to develop this property, but there's a, you know, a can spotted owl on it that is protected. And, you know, this is eco-fascism. Uh, yeah. And, and in fact, I, I, I think it was in the introduction to the book. I'm not sure where I picked up this piece of information, but that, that uh, Linkola was in fact inspired by the, um, some of the environmental protections that were passed in the United States in the 1970s, like uh, um, Endangered Species Act and, you know, some some of these things, which he saw as being uh, very definitely fascist. Like, mm-hmm. that's a, fasc- a fascist thing for a government, authoritarian, maybe a, a more accurate. Um, and th- that was that was kind of his inspiration to say, well, if we can do this, like... Mm-hmm what else can we do with this, with this system? <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, so I would say, you know, number one, it's, it's just kind of a pejorative that, that gets launched at anybody who is like, Hey, maybe we should think about the watershed. It's like, we're trying to make a McDonald's here, you know, you fascist. Yeah. yeah you mm-hmm. eco-fascist. Um, so, uh, second, the second kind of loose definition is that, you know, I would say that there's, identifiably 
a variant of national, you know, ultra nationalist white nationalism, mm -hmm. um, which is preoccupied with this notion of the sanctity of the land and the people who inhabit that space, however it's defined naturally, like this is the people who belong here, um, you know, and so that often comes with an agenda of vilifying immigrants and um, kind of more broadly, you know, the the uh, demasculating um, qualities of industrial modernity, you know, and so you'll have, you know, kind of a survivalist, some of your preppers and survivalists definitely fall in this in this camp. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then the third ecofascism that I think, and, and so first of all, that one specifically, I think relates to uh, Linkola's position. And then, but he actually incorporates the third uh, kind of identifiable strain, which is a, right now it's just a theoretical construct of an authoritarian government that strictly controls individual behavior in order to maximize environmental health and or remediation. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I feel like that he is already, you know, cleanly comfortable in the second camp, although he may not be politically allied with, uh, with some of those organizations in Finland. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but that his program that he puts forth in the, uh, one of the essays really is is a pretty clear example of the of the third the authoritarian government too so mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of like that's kind of like my conceptual uh, map of what ecofascism uh, would entail and so to your point about the the Venn diagram thing it's like if you could imagine you know um, a Venn diagram where you have deep ecologists uh, and who are all left with that lingering question of by what means. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and then in the other one you have, I, I would just say like ultranationalism because, um, you know, any, any place, any ethnicity uh, is capable of, uh, of, of that kind of social expression. So it's mm -hmm. not, something that that uh white people made up um <laughs> yeah, even, yeah even even if we really like it you know uh so there's a so there's a place where uh that that strain and the deep ecology overlap mm -hmm. um and i would say that uh that is sort of the coordinate that we're trying to figure out you know how cleanly does um does Linkola fit into that overlap? Yeah, so I think that uh, when it comes to things like, he, well, he's certainly a nationalist. He cares mostly about Finland. And uh, I believe part of his, uh, that amazing like 20 point plan that he puts at the end of the book has to do with completely closing borders, right? Yeah. So there's there's definitely like the nationalistic strain. But what's, what's interesting about Linkola, I think, is his complete sort of disdain for uh, for any kind of democracy, right? Like he definitely thinks that democracy was where things took sort of a bad turn. So while he, I feel like in America, we would equate like nationalism with sort of like, I don't know, maybe more like American values like democracy or something, or maybe not, I don't know. But his uh, his disdain for allowing people to have a voice, I think, is pretty well summed up uh, in this passage here that I had highlighted. Um, he says, Never before in history have the distinguishing values of a culture been things as concretely destructive for life and the quality of life as democracy, individual freedom, and human rights, not to mention money. Freedom here means the freedom to consume, to exploit, to tread upon others, all rights, even the most seemingly beautiful, women's rights, children's rights, rights for the disabled, only express one thing, me, me, me. Pure selfishness has been given a new name, self-realization, now considered the noblest of all morals. Words like responsibility, duty, humility, self-sacrifice, nurturing, and care are always spat upon 
if they still happen to be mentioned. So yeah, that pretty much sort of sums up how he feels about a kind of society in which uh, people have the ability to have a kind of agency, I guess, within, well, not agency, but freedom, right? right. Um, and I think that, I thought that that might be an interesting thing to kind of talk about because that leads into, I mean, he thinks a whole bunch of very interesting things and it's always dropped very kind of subtly. For example, Linkola would want, in his in his hypothetical perfect world, right, there would be this authoritarian regime, at least over, you know, Finland. But in, in his ideal, it would be over the entire world. And uh, we could just get into the dark part of it, I guess. He's just, He essentially thinks that everything up to 10% of the population needs to be exterminated. And he... So... Go ahead. Um, there, I, I'd like to talk about liberal democracy just a little bit more. Sure, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because he he has a very specific formulation for his indictment of it. Okay. Um, or or more specifically, I should say the the liberal democratic experiment of multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. Right. So he he's like his argument is that. It is irrational to try and extend kinship bonds um, beyond kind of a regional national level. Mm-hmm. Like so to so to protect you know to say that we care about the nutrition and well-being you know of a person in, in Kazakhstan mm-hmm. uh, is n- not just irrational, but it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And so if we're making decisions, based on the premise that we do and that we can, they are clearly poorly informed decisions. Uh, and he, you know, and and so there's an there's an aspect of this argument that I actually find uh, strangely compelling. Mm-hmm. and and here is here is my reasoning, uh, although obviously, I might have like a very different application. Or lesson that I take away from that. Um, so, you know, if we think about the the development of of human social systems over, you know, a long span of time, a human span of time, uh, you know, we have, you know, first of all, we have pretty clear evidence that um, cooperation was one of the fundamental human qualities that um, made us so adaptable. Mm-hmm. Like we have good good evidence about that Mm -hmm. and so if cooperating on a a kinship or extended kinship group had a certain degree of facility to it then developing the social systems to to organize human activity then on a city scale is the line at which we demarcate uh civilization right okay um and then and uh, I think it's uh, Harold Isaac's Idols of the Tribe kind of takes us through this process by which, politically speaking or socially speaking, that that um, growth from you know of of social systems to include more and more people, um, you know, can be seen as a kind of um, evolutionary progression. Yeah. Um, I'm more inclined, actually, to think of it as an expression of our efficiency at um, extracting and harnessing energy. Hmm. Okay. And and so where we see the greatest expression of that, you know, broader sense of identity. So we might be talking about, like, you know, the Roman Empire or, uh, you know... Uh, different caliphates or you know the mayan empire you know where you really have large areas of land and diverse populations that are brought under you know one social system uh those are always about the energetic um extraction of energy from you know if it's crops or you know as you get into the 
to the modern period into uh, you know industrial processes, fossil fuels and coal and you know uh, these things. So uh, Joseph Tainer makes a pretty specific argument that um, you know the complexification of those systems uh, are a product of energy investment, and okay. so the process of collapse of those systems then uh, is about the decline of energy available for investment. Uh, and so if you can imagine then, you know, during the post-World War II industrial period where, um, you know, all of this energy is just being used so intensely in a way that it never had in the you know course of human history, uh, it only makes sense that our that our social systems would dramatically expand mm -hmm. because of that investment. But now that 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 um, resource is not as uh, readily available uh, for use specifically on building social systems, um, those that that universal sense of belonging starts to recede. Hmm. That's very, um, that's, that's interesting. That is really interesting to kind of link it to the sort of progress in energy production of an entire uh, sort of group of people and have that yeah. sort of equated to this, what we think of as maybe uh, social coherence, right? Or social yeah. Yeah, sort of yeah. belonging. And I think, to pinpoint it at World War Two is a very interesting and I think correct, because that isn't that sort of like the last time that Americans kind of all felt united against a, a common enemy, right? Like, I feel yeah, like World War I mean, II, they, they were, I mean, more or less, right? Yeah, the, I, I would definitely say that the that the nineteen the nineteen eighties um, that there that there was probably the last time kind of a sustained national sense of uh unity mm -hmm. uh and and not ne not necessarily for good reasons like i'm not saying that's magical and we should all you know that should be something that we aspire to but yeah. it's like as a fact and then you know yeah, events like 911 mm -hmm. you know we felt like that for a while yeah you know so it yeah. wasn't a it it was more like a you know, it was more like a burst uh, mm -hmm. that that deeply changed the course of of people's lives and the decisions that they made. And you know, but but it wasn't a it wasn't a permanent phenomenon. It was a it was a just a, a brief reminder of that of that, that kind of strong cultural unity. Right. So right. so. When I when I read you know Linkola writing about this and and knowing that these ideas are are gaining you know kind of traction in the in the broader social conversation, um, it's not to say that I don't aspirationally still still you know feel that sense of um, human unity you know like yeah what happens what what happens to people in Mumbai like it matters to me. Mm -hmm. But, but I can also understand why there might be segments of the population for whom that myth just holds no purchase. Anymore. Right, right, yeah. To kind of like sort of make your circle smaller and smaller and smaller. So there's actually, I'm glad that you mentioned that because there are a lot of ideas in this book that I liked. I didn't necessarily like the uh, the conclusions that come from those ideas, but this is in particular one of them. The actual uh, shrinking of social spheres into small groups, yeah. where I would obviously draw the line is that I wouldn't want that enforced. But I think that that's sort of moving forward into the future. Basically, that idea, and again, less consumption. I feel like I feel like a lot of the things that Linkola talks about, I think, I'm kind of bouncing around a lot here, but I think that Linkola has, he's a real grumpy guy, right? And I think that he presents a lot of really great ideas, but he has this idea that now because there's 7 billion people on the planet, it's completely impossible to do these things. Right. And I think that, I think that he might be a bit constrained by <clears throat> his lack of actually having traveled anywhere, because I'm not sure he's ever left Finland. Um, right. 
and Finland is kind of his whole world. So right. he's he's sort of hearing these stories about overpopulation and economic collapse. He does he does say in the book that he has traveled to I believe Russia and Sweden to look at their forests and things like that. But yeah. I think that the the issue really comes from him just kind of not understanding how uh, sort of massive the Earth is and how there's there is still a lot of room left to maneuver even with seven billion or nine billion or ten billion people which again is way too many people but it's not this kind of end of the world that he that he puts together so i'll table that for just a second and say that i do like his ideas of of small groups i do like his ideas of consuming less i really like his ideas of uh eventually having a kind of relationship with the animals that you slaughter or that you use for their milk or, or what have you. I think that yeah. that's probably a, a, that's goals as the youth would say. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can, you can jump in anytime by the way, if you want to interrupt. Oh, me no, no, I, I, I feel like you're, you're, you're right on point with that. And, um, but it's valuable, I think to, again, return back to this framework of, of deep ecology and ecofascism. Yeah. And to the extent that, you know, Linkola articulates deep ecology, I agree with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in so doing, I'm also left with the question of by what means, mm-hmm. you know, and, and temperamentally, my answer to that is fundamentally opposed to his. Right. And that is, you know, that is the, de- the degree to which, uh, you know, he express, expresses his eco-fascist tendencies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you think about fascism as, you know, a top-down um, imposition of, uh, you know, a certain set of behaviors... Uh, then we can contrast that with, with, you know, anarchy, which says that any meaningful and lasting change happens at the unit of the individual working in sympathetic and cooperative groups. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you, for, you know, for a lot of his, you know, his program, you know, the parts that I think resonate with me that are actually deep ecological in their orientation um all of those things could be uh could be brought about voluntarily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah and so this gets to a central question of what is the purpose of the state <laughs> you know and my particular position on that is you know the purpose of the state is to protect property rights Right. Something that he's very concerned about in, in this essay. Um, the so one other one other thing that I think is is worth sort of putting out there as where we like so the argument that I'm making is that Lincoln is not actually consistent with himself. Uh, and that is that is what is ultimately the you know the fatal flaw specifically of this uh this essay can we survive a model for controlled future mm-hmm. and that by mixing in sound deep ecological principles with unsound eco-fascist tendencies you know that that ultimately he doesn't he doesn't even agree with himself right. about some right. about some fundamental principles well, um, we can even uh, just just to interject really fast about him not yeah. being able to sort of agree even with himself. There is this there's a bit in the book where he actually goes into some depth about infanticide and about how basically the population explosion is due mainly to the fact that, you know, he talks about war happening. And when a war happens, a lot of men go to war and they get killed. But he said that doesn't really matter anyway, because there can always be like fewer men to seed the women to have the babies so it's not a it's not an it's not something that can actually be be solved so he right. talks about um essentially infanticide 
and forced sterilization um, in order to keep the population down. And then he talks about like, okay, so then who can we get rid of? We can get rid of criminals, right? So he's pretty he's pretty harsh about that. He's like thieves up against the wall, murderers up against the wall, all these awful people up against the wall. Uh, people with mental disabilities, he wants to yeah. put them down as well. But then, but here's my point. Here's where I almost laughed out loud because there's this whole section uh, about how, but you know who you don't want to kill are the really old people, are the elderly. So he has this whole thing about like how the elders are the smartest people in society, about how uh, young people are essentially stupid. And you have to, against all odds, sort of like keep your elders, right? Use medical technology because he he largely blames doctors for the population explosion. But then he'll mm -hmm. turn around and say, but doctors are great because they're able to keep the elderly alive so that they can continue sharing their wisdom. And it's like, yeah, when he wrote this, he was in his early 70s, maybe mid 70s yeah. and it's kind of like this is the problem that i always have with these with these ideas well besides the the barbarism of mass murder right yeah if we set the uh, genocide aside for a second yeah you know? we, we just put to, just table the genocide for a second but it, they're all it's always like okay who gets eliminated them out there who gets to stay me right yeah yeah. There's never well, this kind of thing where it's like where he's like, I will go the way of ancient Sparta. And when I hit 80 years old, you can toss me off of a cliff for the right. amusement of the of the masses or whatever. Oh, no, 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 no. We have to keep the elderly because yeah. they're actually smarter than everybody. And it's like, oh, at times the man just seems really grumpy about stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you were well, to get a picture inside my head, I'm not too proud of some of the things that I think. But yeah. I've been pissed off enough to be like, you know what? I just I wish him, I wished everybody would die. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I didn't yeah. write a whole book about it. Yeah. So, you know, again, I feel like that there's a that there's a there's a kernel of truth sitting at that uh, at the at the center of that, which is that, you know, the way that our culture uh, uh, handles its aging populations is shitty. Yeah. Just like just like the rest of our culture which is mostly pretty shitty so it's not any surprise that we've commodified aging and dying and that the processes by which we socially deal with that are are really just heartbreaking right. like it's it's fucking awful mm -hmm. so from that from there i'm like yeah man we could do a lot better job you know but um I, you know, I made a note in one of the earlier essays, not the ones that were, he, he writes, uh, you know, when the lifeboat is full, those who hate life will try and pull more people onto it, thus drowning everyone. Mm -hmm. Those who love and respect life will instead <laughs> grab an axe and sever the hands clinging to the gunwales. And I, when I read that, I was like, yeah, and it doesn't surprise me at all that this guy cannot possibly imagine himself as the person who is trying to get onto the boat. That's the like, fundamental break, right? Like yeah, he's yeah. he's always the guy who's in the boat. Yeah, and and that's and the problem. So, and that's you know that's super, that's super helpful. Um, yeah, so that that kind of comes up, you know, over and over again. Um, and even, you know, the, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the essay in just a second. I, 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 I wanted to, to kind of put forward, you know, one other sort of component before we get to the essay itself, uh, mm -hmm. which is to talk about why this collection of ideas is so poisonous. Okay. Yeah. Um, because it, you know, it's, you know, as we're sitting here chatting about it, it's, it's, you know, it's funny to me. Mm -hmm. Like the, the parts that are offensive are, are funny in a way because it's so clear to me uh, how, how it um, sort of diverges from something that's a reasonable suggestion to the extent that I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you also were left wondering several times, like, 
is this shit for real? Like, does he yeah. actually believe any of this stuff? Oh, yeah. And I, th- and I think that's really dangerous mm-hmm. because that's not a knowable thing or like he may not even know the answer to that question. Right. Like how much of this is real and how much of this is like performance art about, mm-hmm. um, and you know, an environmental performance art, you know? Um, well, to be fair, the, the Finns are not exactly known for their, uh, sardonic sense of humor um well if they have a if they have a sense of humor it's definitely macabre right and, and there's a, there's just there's a bit in the book where he talks about his friend Joka, who, who's a fellow fisherman and he says yeah. Joka, he was a big joker always always he would have you doubled over with laughter and i was just imagine like what is that humor like it's like look the fish is dead look at his eyes they're so <laughs> stupid looking and then the and then and then linkle is like Joko, you cad, you, you, you crack me up every time. Like they're not, they're not exactly. Uh, so to your point about it, like, like is he is is this like a performance art thing? Yeah, I would say culturally, um, probably no. Yeah, uh, it's so. But let's let's extend some kernel of the benefit of the doubt and say that there's some element of you know a okay. kind of Swiftian satire. Okay, uh, maybe. Man, who, sure. who knows? No, yeah, yeah we, that's, that's, that's Post, fine. To, to, postmodernism, to... all we can do is, uh, you know, posit um, parallel realities which accrue, you know, or whatever it is. Sure. So, um, but let's consider this through the lens that I think a lot of its potential audience might, which is uh, it's a potential audience faced with the very real possibility of dramatic and rapid, rapid social collapse. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and so, if you're imagining like, what's that going to be like? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. And the answer is, it will be like what someone creates in the absence of the preceding social system. Mm-hmm. So. If we think of social collapse as, um, you know, sort of a fait accompli uh, that, you know, is, is, is going to happen and that we can predict in advance what the pieces are going to look like based on historical precedent or current cultural context or, you know, whatever lens that you might want to think about that, I think it's more accurate to assume that people will be working proactively to bring about their agenda. Mm-hmm. And so the people who have made plans yeah. are going to be at a um, competitive advantage. <laughs> yeah, I see, where I see where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so for example, let's take someone who, who has a more... Uh, benign view of the human presence on the earth, uh, you know, like Jim Bendel and his deep adaptation strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are four fundamental components or four questions that you have to ask uh, in using the deep adaptation strategy, which is um, what? how do we keep what we want to keep? which is also a question about what do we want to keep. The second one is what do we need to let go of in order to keep things from getting worse? Mm-hmm. Uh, the third one is what can we bring back to help us? Well, no, what is what bring back from where exactly? Uh, human historical practice. So, oh, oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I got confused there for yeah, a second. I got far, you. Far, Farming with horses. Got you, got you, um, got you. Okay. You know, metal, metal working. You know, um, canning and preserving. You know that that kind of that kind of thing. And then more recently, he's added the fourth R, uh, radical hope, and it's just the idea that um, there is a, uh, you know, once you get sort of through the five stages of denial about uh, the, you know, the the predicaments. 
that are currently unfolding, um, you have to you can you can strive to arrive at a place where you um, can acknowledge your agency mm-hmm. in shaping what it's going to look like. Okay. And and that you may not always um, live to see the full expression, uh, but it's better to do good than to do bad, because that's going to have an effect on how people live uh, going forward. And and what's interesting is that Linkola's program, as he puts it forward here, like does three of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it fits it. So, so I'm saying like, it is a deep adaptation strategy, right? It's just not one that I want to be part of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like critiquing this thing and really pulling it apart and showing its inconsistencies, I think, um, is a tool that we can provide people, uh, in, um, trying to assess what better strategies might be. Yeah, no, I like it. Shall we move into the uh, the final essay? My, my lord, of... we have talked it up. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Okay, so it all kind of leads to this. Um, like I said, I, I recommend people, before we kind of get into it, this is a little review corner, I, I recommend people actually check this book out, uh, read it. I think it has a lot of values in not only in uh, kind of the ideas that it presents that are not genocidal, but also in the genocidal ones too, right? Uh, The book really kind of made me, um, it made me do a lot of uh, mental lifting that I wouldn't have had to do if this was a book that I was just on board with all the way. Um, I'm finding a lot of value recently in checking books like this out uh, that I find kind of abhorrent in a way or that I'm kind of radically opposed to. mainly for the reason that you brought up just a few minutes ago, which is that I don't feel like you can actually develop an opposing strategy until you understand what the opposition is doing in the first place. Um, And I feel like you can't get it secondhand. Uh, As a subset to that, as a subset to that, there's a kind of uncomfortable idea that I think we all need to think with, which is that people who hold views that we find uh, abhorrent or, or just kind of evil, uh, might actually have something useful to teach us. And I think that we don't do ourselves any favors by keeping them at arm's length. I think that we kind of have to bring them in, at least to our own personal sort of mental um, circle, and really kind of grapple with them and reckon with them. So that's just my sort of little capsule, like go, go check out this book. Um, if you're so inclined, because I think it has value in those ways. Mm-hmm. But, all right, so final essay. Rob, would you like to take the reins on this one? You can pick it up uh, from where, wherever you may like, sir, because <laughs> it it's, it's a dense one. Yeah, so, you know, I think the... I think the, probably the uh, a good analog that you could make... Uh, would be to describe this as his version of Plato's Republic. Okay. Right. So this is a this is a utopian uh, product, um, wherein he gives himself uh, all of the invisible power necessary uh, to bring about change without resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I find it interesting. Uh, this essay was originally published in 1999. Uh, and he foregrounds uh, climate change above all of the other environmental concerns that he has expressed through the course of the collection as the justification for his eco-fascist utopia. Um, now, I, f- I find this particularly interesting uh a couple of months ago, you and I talked about a book called Climate Leviathan. Uh, it's a, a political theory of our planetary future by Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann. And they uh, kind of talk about likely socio-political responses to um, the progressive um, 
unfolding of climate warming disruptions in the climate and so Lincola's program that he puts forward here fits very comfortably in one of the four categories that they came up with which was a kind of nationalist um, authoritarian eco-state or the idea that um, rather than the industrialized nations of the world sort of creating a global unified regulatory structure that was you know draconianly enforced that that would happen on a national scale instead and so that's what they call the climate behemoth Mm -hmm. so so his you know he sort of kicks off his uh his program um talking specifically about um curbing greenhouse gas emissions um now he said that uh he said in the earlier essay about how the human population should be optimally reduced to about 10 percent of of what it is now but right. he he opens this thing and this is just this just got me mm-hmm. he said uh a less ambitious program which is the one that he's putting forward only aims at the preservation of mankind and its few companion species and that the present population would in this not be reduced to one-tenth but only stripped of about two billion people and by the sole means of controlling human birth rates right right which is which is all all complete lies uh (laughs) because first of all this is clearly not a deep ecological program because we are concerned specifically by his own admission with the human population and its companion species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is not a deep ecological. It's not deep ecology. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, he kind it, of directly, he directly contradicts himself because in an earlier essay, he there's direct quote, I'm not going to look for it. I know I highlighted it somewhere, but he says deep ecology is about the whole, right? It's right. and it's it's what it's the definition that you gave so well at the very beginning of this podcast, which is, yeah, it's about uh, man and their companion species as, you know, an equal fractal bit of a greater yeah. whole. Right. So, yeah. Uh, but so I love the fact that like first he's like, look. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the real world and I know that I'm never going to get you all to actually put the needs of the environment ahead of human needs. So I'm making this grand concession where we're going to organize all of this around human needs and, and companion species. Uh, But in exchange, I need you to think about the elimination of 2 billion people as being a more reasonable alternative than mm-hmm. eliminating 90% of the population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a brilliant rhetorical strategy because it's, it's literally nonsense from yeah. beginning to end. But because of the emotional cadences that it hits, mm-hmm. it feels like you're like, oh, well, okay, you know, that, that's a compromise. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's genocidal lowballing, right? Yeah. It's like, it's listen, like, okay, we'll look, only genocide I'm, as hard as we need to. Yeah, look, it's like, look, I want ninety percent gone, but because I like you, I'm willing to right. concede that we just get rid of two billion people. Yeah. And it's like, wait, hold on, when did we start having? When did we start making these deals? Right? Yeah. I'm not yeah. on board with any of that. Right? <laughs> like so we're it, not we're not having a discussion. So you know, and he promises, you know, he's like, hey, the only way that we're gonna be bringing this two billion we're not we're not talking about marching people off the cliff we're just going to uh, get very specific about who makes babies and under what circumstances that they're allowed to persist Uh, but that's actually not true either no it isn't (laughs) because he's talking about people uh, starving to death in places where food production can't sustain the population Mm -hmm. now that's a conversation but it's not one that I want implied into my assent uh, and the second thing is that med- medicine will intervene much less intensively to sustain and extend the lifespan specifically of children. 
So right. we're talking about more children dying at birth or in early childhood. And, you know, that's just the cost of doing doing business. Yeah, there's a there's a chilling line where he says, um, while this might be objectionable to some, he's like, infanticide has long been practiced by human beings. It's just something that was, which is, again, very, very nearly a, a Swiftian thing where you have to sort of step back and be like, is he serious? Is he, is this, is this a real thing? Um, but yeah, so there's the infanticide. And also I think it's worth pointing out that there are several instances throughout uh, the the book, which I think I've mentioned before, that do mention uh, his sort of um, admiration for for the, for the gulag, for the camp, right? Yeah. He, he 100% wants there to be camps. Uh, yeah. for for criminals and dissenters and people who have overconsumed in their lifetime there's a bit where he talks about like punishing them on the same sort of level where um people, you know you have people thieves who and, are yeah people who are most responsible for the present economic growth and competition will be transferred to the mountains and the highlands to be reeducated there we go yeah that's that's what i was looking for yeah so, <laughs> i said I said, yikes, how many of them do we expect to see again? <laughs> right, right, exactly, for re-education, right? So he's he's yeah. he's a fan of this, you know? Yeah. And I think that we can't really, I think we have to take him at his word because I think we're just so used to people not speaking this way, at least in, in polite circles, that we almost believe that people don't think this way. But a lot of people really do, you know? If, if, well, if, you, and- gave, if you gave them the reins... There'd, there'd be camps in the mountains for sure. And and also, like, you, you, you know, you have to imagine a, a crisis environment that, mm-hmm. you know, because whatever change comes, it's, it's not going to be um, hashed out at a Democratic primary. Right. It's, <laughs> it's going to be hashed out. I mean, like... I, I guess I'm saying, like, historically speaking, if we were prepared, you know, socially, politically, economically, you know, virtuously to deal with this problem proactively, wouldn't we have started by now? Mm-hmm. And so then we're left to imagine, um, you know, what kinds of changes are going to be put forward in crises. And people don't always make their best and most humane decisions about how to how to proceed uh from a place of of fear and um want yeah yeah so that being said i feel like we've kind of as far as like the listener is concerned i feel like we've pretty pretty adequately laid out linkola's ideas and strategies Mm -hmm. kind of kind of what he wants so as a kind of um to sort of like conclude on a higher note. So mm-hmm. what can we kind of take from this and what what can we actually extract from the text and bring with us in our own kind of like understanding that he's not wrong, that climate change is real, um, that constant consumption and overproduction and constant favoring of the market economy over uh, the stability of environments all of that's real. All the yeah. all the conceits that Linkolo lays out before he kind of goes full Hitler on us um, are correct and true. Um, I think that the place to start, for me at least, was the idea of kind of the idea of sort of gradually phasing out consumption as much as I. Right possibly realistically can on an individual level so oddly enough i think would you say it's accurate that that if we took these ideas and much to linkola's probable chagrin actually did individualize them there might be something like a plan of action there yeah so you know i think that you can you know setting aside his Ecofascist agenda, there is still some very well-informed, deep ecological principles uh, that are on display. Um, I I believe that the the section where he writes about the transition from electric energy 
to a combination of human labor and renewable energy. Mm-hmm. That's the future. Yeah, yeah. I like, think things things getting stop. harder. Yeah, him talking full about stop. having to having, <laughs> having to use his uh his scythe to cut down hay and then having to use poles to drag it. You know what did he say? Five kilometers or something through the the forest. I mean, that's where we have to go, right? Like everything yeah. just has to get a little bit harder. And he does. He gives in another one of his strange concessions. He gives that as an idea to actually help the economy, which he's ostensibly against completely. But yeah. he talks about a, a politician saying, you know, somebody asks the a presidential candidate or something, how do we create more jobs? And he's Lincoln is right when he responds to this person who he's not really speaking to. When he responds, you know, we have to st- just get rid of machines. Like people yeah. have to go back to doing the work, and it's it's not as efficient, and it is harder. But that's the answer, and he's a hundred percent right, a hundred percent right with that. Well, and especially you know if you if you think about all of the kind of. Uh, anti-globalist protests that are coalescing around the world uh and you know some on the left some on the right some with no political orientation that anyone can even parse out um that's that's a resonant message like that's a message that people are looking for someone to articulate now again you know by what means (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. you have to you have to continually come back to that and so um you know my my particular orientation is if that is something about which i feel strongly my first and most pressing obligation is to manifest it in my own life Mm -hmm. and 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 it has no meaning as a theoretical construct that's not brought about through what is the praxis you know the Right. The, the actions that actually like represent mm-hmm. um, those values. And then if you create communities of people who are committed to those values, then that can influence, you know, so again, we have a bottom up um, strategy by which, you know, solutions are contexted for places and particular people and not just handed down Um because you know we are dying of uh, top-down political social management, like yeah. we're or mis mismanagement would be a better uh, description. Um, he wrote a he writes a little bit here about agriculture, and uh, there was some there was some interesting stuff in there, especially because you know like most of the book is about how there shouldn't be agriculture, and then he actually puts forward some pretty what I would consider to be more sustainable food system ideas than, than what we're acting out now, mm-hmm. you know? So, so I think that like, if the reader can come into this essay with a, with a pretty solid understanding of what deep ecological principles are, or at least appreciate what its orientation is so that when they're confronted by an idea, it's like, is that really necessary? It's like, it's not deep ecological, like, Which I think is a which I think is a valid and legitimate um, critique, and ecofascism I don't I don't think is a valid critique. Like I don't think that it holds up, right? um, Right. Under scrutiny. So yeah, unless unless again you know what you can take from it practically is great too. I also think that you know if you want to have a little pentilinkula on your on your shoulder whispering in your ear about what you particularly should be doing not what other people should be doing yeah but if you if you turn the eco-fascist lens in on yourself if you want to you know uh internally eliminate 90 percent of the population for lack of a more pleasant yeah. term, uh then i think that that's fine i think that's totally fine i think that and that's within as- your that's within your that's within your agency as a human being like that is the person that you should be changing (laughs) like and and it's a you know it's a failure of the imagination of lingola's imagination in particular that we can only conceptualize this kind of change as being handed down to us from a government which has shown no uh 
you know, utility at making um, non-damaging social systems. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it, you're you getting mad at your dog for eating trash. This is what gov- <laughs> this is what governments do, man. Like, like you right. know. Uh, so if you if you you know if you want to uh, make these changes, many of which are sensible and wise, uh, make them in yourself. Man, I think that's a great note to end on. I, I think that that leaves it on a very nice note. So, Rob, uh, is there anything that you'd like to to tell the, the, the people, anything that you might have written recently that you would like for them to read or uh, any any particular books that they might be uh, reading? Um, you know, I always assume everybody's reading what they want to be reading right now. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, uh, it, I, I did an interview with... Uh, David Holmgren, uh, who was one of the founders of Permaculture. Uh, it's on the World Literature Today. It's worldliteraturetoday.org. Um, you can look up David Holmgren, H-O-L-M-G-R-E-N. Uh, he had some really interesting things to say about um, kind of the converging crises of um, um, climate, you know, uh, greenhouse gas emissions leading to the uh, climate disruptions and then also um, declining energy uh, and what how how the convergence of those two things may may shape the future um, particularly prescient because he talks in the interview about the fire season in Australia last year yeah uh, and uh, I've been you know quietly concerned and watching the the fire maps in Australia to Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Uh, you know he's 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 still there, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and it's and it's a it's a real problem. So, mm-hmm. um, so people can check that out. It's called uh, "Shouting for Less," uh, was the name uh, of the uh, of the interview. All right. Well, I will link that in our show notes, Mr. Rob Volmar. It is always a pleasure to speak to you, sir. Thanks, buddy. It was good talking with you.